So, who is this? Oh, this is a little creature known as the Yoda. You got that drawing from Los Angeles, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, quite a few hundreds made, I think. Finally, he was selected. And uh, then from that, we uh, have to make something that looks pretty realistic. But first of all, a puppet was made to get some idea what it would look like in, in three dimensions rather than just a drawing. And this little fella was made purely for that. And as you can see, he's quite an interesting little character. But now he is a puppet, so we now have to make uh, the, what we hoped to appear to be the real thing rather than just a puppet. I would say, well, we've been on this little fellow now for about four weeks, and uh, we have another four weeks to go. We've got to achieve an awful lot in a short space of time. You must feel the force around you. You. Between you, me, the free, the rock, everywhere. Episode number 225 of Blast Points is Jason. And this is Gabe. And this is Tom Spina. What? Wow. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, uh, no one who saw the description to this episode would ever know that uh, that I'd be showing up today. Yeah. We, we spelled your name different just to try to throw people off the scent. And it was, it was a good trick. It was a good trick. I, I you know, hopefully that does it. Uh, so, I mean, sooner or later, my, my continued appearances will chase away your audience. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> that's, you're on, you're on to us now. That's our that's our secret plan, to, so we can retire. <laughs> the long con. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> you guys, you, your your real goal is just to just to kick back. What <laughs> well, you know. If we keep getting this Spina guy on here, I bet we could get him to do the talking. And then you and me, Gabe, is on easy street. <laughs> well, we have got a really special treat for everyone today. We are talking to the one and only Nick Maley. Like Nick, he's, he's a man who wears many hats, right? Tom, how, how would you describe 
Nick and what what folks are about to hear. Nick is someone that you know from the Star Wars universe. Uh, he's a member of Stuart Freeborn's makeup team. He's someone that uh, had a very direct hand in bringing Yoda to life for the screen. Uh, he worked on my favorite scene, the Cantina, and did some of his his first on screen makeups for that scene, and then went on to work on. Some really cool kind of cult classic movies, things like Highlander, things like Krull. Uh, and uh, he is this repository of knowledge and stories and, and really an inspiration as well. He is someone that uh, I, I think, you know, his sort of life's mission has become to uh, to inspire people to follow their dreams the way he did and and you know, find their own path and, and, um, just always is a joy to talk to always has a lot of great stories. And, and, you know, I recommended him to you guys for this podcast because I just know how fun it is to chat with Nick, Nick for an hour or two and soak up all that, uh, inspiration, all those stories. And I think the folks at home are going to love it. I couldn't have said any better myself. So with that, let's, uh, let's listen to the time that, uh, we all talked to Nick Maley. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know it was kind of last minute. I know we kind of took you by surprise, but oh, that's okay. Uh, you know, I'm I'm good at being taken by surprise. <laughs> Once I get over the surprise. No. <laughs> so, how did Tom and Nick? How did you guys meet? How did you guys get to know each other? Because we we were talking to Tom a couple of weeks ago about like. Star Wars fingernails, or one of one of our topics, we were talking, and and I think he was like, "Would you have you guys have you guys got to talk to to Nick Maley?" And yeah, we, how do you guys? What's your history together? Do, do you want uh, me to? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I as as I remember, um, you know, Tom from like twenty years ago was this young guy who kept on asking me about uh, reproducing what he was trying to do was reproduce characters from the Mosaisley Cantina, as I remember it. And um and so I used to respond to emails which uh, you know we didn't have all these 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 easy um ways of talking to each other that we have today. So everything was was by email. And um over the years, I've watched Tom grow into, you know, a great professional, and I'm I'm really proud of him. Ah, thank you. I didn't I I didn't realize that was a fishing expedition question you guys just had. That was very very nice though. Yeah, I mean, I I remember, uh, you know, virtually camping out on Nick's lawn and just waiting till he'd give me some tidbits about Cantina stuff. No, that, that means a lot from you, Nick, and and um, and it definitely helped me on my path over these years. And, and Nick had so Nick was wait. One of the things I talk about in my book is I say it doesn't actually cost anything to encourage people. 
Um, mm. We seem to, particularly back in my day, uh, it was all about, you know, holding people down rather than lifting people up. And a little encouragement uh, it goes a long way. If you, when you uplift your team, well, guess what? You know, they they may be uplifted, but they lift you up with them. They they appreciate it. They, yeah. you know, it's a it's a it's a growth pattern, and it's a it's a very positive thing. I don't think there's it, it, largely an attitude that came that came from Tom Smith, who was, to my memory, the the first. Um, person that I remember that just very openly shared um, yeah. his techniques and things with other people, and that certainly rubbed off on me, and I believe rubbed off on uh, on Rick and other people. Oh, definitely, Rick. Yeah, Rick. Rick talks about um, uh, Dick all the time, just in that that way that he would. Um, you know, just share everything that he was working on and, and formulas and and you know, you hear Rick's stories about, I mean, I guess it's honestly not that far off from, you know, what, what happened with me and uh, Nick, where, you know, you had uh, Rick writing letters to Dick in the, in the early seventies or late sixties, I guess this probably would have been. And, you know, getting, getting answers back from this guy who was, had worked on all these things that he had loved and was a hero and was somebody that you know, he looked up to and wanted to be like, and to just to get that encouragement back is, uh, it, it obviously set Rick on a path. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, I guess is, you know, there's, there was that attitude of pulling the ladder up behind you, you know, less, less that someone knock you off the top, I guess. And that, that, that happened a lot in those days, you know, in those yeah. days, and I, when I, I just did a, a thing about Stu Freeborn, uh, last weekend. And, um, you know, one of the things I say about that is, you know, he spent 10 years at Denim Studio doing, you know, prosthetic makeups that other people got credit for because um, the head of department got a credit. And so, you know, it was ingrained in that generation that, yeah. you know, they kept control of the of the jobs, remembering it's all freelance. They keep control of the jobs by by controlling their crew, and uh, yeah. and and that was something that that those of us who who uh, you know grew up under them, um, you know, had to deal with along the way. I, I I think that one of the issues for me too is the fact that I didn't fall into making movies. I uh, it took it took a long time to go from uh, you know being told I was an idiot who was going to work in a factory to standing on the set of Star Wars. It was about 13 years, something like that. And in that time, uh, it would have been easy to give up at any point. And most of the people that you talk to, normal people, think they're doing you a favor by giving you good, solid advice to tell you to basically give up on your crazy idea. Right. It's never going to happen. And, you know, so encouragement uh, is something that 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 for me is a is a is a critical thing i want to be a positive voice in other people's lives I th and you are I, you know uh, i think that was the standout thing so one of the reasons i contacted nick and you know, you talk about head of department so you know uh, this is this is like you said 20 years ago this is late 90s angel fire websites and stuff like that or whatever it was <laughs> you would go to look up um 
you know, the credits of a movie online and there wasn't much there. And if you were lucky, you would get, you know, even Stu Freeborn or Rick Baker, you wouldn't get their crew. You wouldn't get the full breakdown. And in particular, the, the UK team was kind of a mystery. This little beacon on the web was Nick's Cine Secrets site back yeah. in the day. And you would go and there was 8-bit Star Wars music because that was the state of the art. <laughs> and um, black with blue writing or yellow writing. That was always a little tough to read on my monitor. But the the stories there were amazing. And it was, it, you know, Nick, you were the first one to give a voice to you know, certainly all of the sung, unsung heroes there. But, uh, I mean, most of all, Graham. Also, who is, also Graham, but also the uh, the other puppeteers. You know, one of the things yeah. that upset me um, about uh, a lot of the stuff there, um, it, all, all the archive at that point in time was written by publicists. And those yeah. publicists basically would give out information and then someone would read that information and they would they'd write an article, and then the archive would collect the article, and that became, you know, that became the Star Wars archive. And uh, you know, no one wrote anything about the other um, puppeteers because Frank was famous. He was, you know, he was he was from the Muppets, and so they were focusing so much on Frank that people would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Frank Oz was the puppeteer for Yoda, which, of course, is, is, is correct. But, um, but they would just completely miss out Wendy and, and all the other people uh, that, that also contributed um, under Frank's guidance to make that happen. And, I, I, you know, it seemed to me that, uh, especially as I get older and I see those people who were my mentors uh, have all gone now uh, and you realize all the information and all the stuff that they knew and all of their experiences that are lost along the way and 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 no one will know if someone doesn't write it down or or in the case of my little museum we we try to film people and turn them into holograms and um, <laughs> uh, you know and do it that way but just to try and find ways of capturing people's memories before they're gone and and no one can remember them anymore mm. and and that really was the the thing that that um that stood out to me from uh from that side of yours and it was you know the first time i think a lot of us glimpsed anything beyond the publicist voice you know beyond that glossy a uh, little blurb you'd get in the magazine for behind the scenes, or maybe the thing that got, gosh, two seconds of screen time in the making of. I would watch those making ofs, and it really wasn't until maybe Phil Tippett's shop in the Star Wars to Jedi where they they actually spent some time in the creature shop. But you know, all the ones for Empire, all the ones for um, Star Wars they really glossed over a lot of that stuff. They would talk about, you know, oh, there were bizarre creatures and they would just show a little shot of the canteen and then that was all they'd give you. And it was just, you know, I'm sitting there going like, where are the stories who made of the people who made this stuff? Like someone yeah. spent weeks working on this. Who were they? What did they do? 
I, I'm coming back to uh, to what I said earlier about Stu having spent ten years, uh, you, you know, without uh, without being credited for what he was doing. I think it was literally ten years before he got a, a screen credit, and um, and that stuck with him in many ways. He would, uh, and he was, you know, he was my my mentor by uh, influence, and I don't mean this to sound you know, this to be a complaint or a negative thing, but, you know, it was normal for him to say, to send us all out on, on, uh, errands. And then when we came back, we found the publicity department had been there and taken all the photographs of him and, and Graham and Kay. And, uh, and, and there wasn't anybody else in the workshop at the time. He I think he, it was his way of protecting, uh, things. And later on, just before I kind of broke away, you know, people would phone up and ask him to do a job. And they'd, when he said he couldn't do it, they, you know, he'd say, can you recommend anybody else? And he'd always say, no, I don't know anybody else who can do this. Even though, you know, his crew oh. had maybe been working with him for five years, you know. Mm. So, you know, one of the one of the issues that I had wanted, um, I had wanted uh, uh, Graham and I to to start a a company together and ideally you know with Stuart as well as the as the mentor so to speak because it, you know in my mind um Stu by that time would have been about 65 and as I'm older than that now I I can't really you know say too much but you know 65 in the film industry is getting up there when you get to about 70 people are worried that as a head of department you're going to have a nervous breakdown or a heart attack and right. so they don't want to give you a a multi multi million dollar movie uh, to take care of and you know in my mind uh, with uh, with it would have been a leg up for Graham and I um but it would also have have extended Stu's career because you know he would having um having multiple um layers of people that could be working under his guidance or under his mentorship would have you know retained his um his influence for another 15 maybe even 20 years so but um but you know it, it didn't happen because um well, there were, I'm, I'm going to put names on it, but there were people who were concerned that uh, that if we went that way, that you know, Stu wouldn't employ Graham and whatever else, and so mm. it just didn't happen. And I went off and and made those movies on my own instead. It's always interesting to hear people's paths for me, anyway. And maybe that's the I don't know. Were you like this, Nick? When you you know when you were a young effects guy or when you were up and coming, did you were did you? It seems like the way you share the history and really to me like the path of getting there. Um, were you obs not obsessed but interested in that from the people who had made it before you? Did you, did you seek out that kind of information too? I think stuff like that really um, comes with experience. At the time, I was so busy scrambling along, trying to get to what, to achieve those goals that I was looking for, that I really didn't have time um, to stop and 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 ask people exactly how they went from A to B. And you know, in, in again, in my book, I talk about the principles of how to get somewhere rather than the specifics of how mm -hmm. I 
person got from A to B because the world changes and influences change. And, and in principle, how I did it um, isn't necessarily relevant to someone who's yeah. trying to today. The basic principle, um, however, is, is the same. It's just you have to find a yeah. different application for it. Yeah. And it's funny that, I mean, that certainly applies to me where, you know, quote, making it for me wasn't uh, necessarily making stuff for films or TV or whatever. Although, you know, we've gotten to do that along the way almost accidentally. Uh, you know, it was finding the idea of restoration and preserving the artifacts and the history of this stuff that gave my company the niche to do what we do and to to and for me to go from, you know, working in TV for a decade to having my own shop and then hiring all these people and giving all these other folks a, a chance to uh, follow, you know, their their passion and their art. And I think, I think what you say is really relevant there. You know, I, I always I was always fascinated by people's paths. I always like. Oh, gosh, I always gravitate towards origin story type movies, too. It's always it's interesting to me to see the A to B. You know, once the guy's already the superhero and he's just facing another bill and it kind of gets boring. But to see how, you know, how does Tony Stark get to be Iron Man? That was fun to me. And I think in reading a lot of those stories, I, I got that same impression that you got, Nick, that, you know, well, it's great to hear how Jim Henson got on television, but that was 1955. And, yeah. you know, it was a very different time. He would walk to a television studio with a bunch of puppets in a bag and they would be like, yeah, sure. Come on. You got the, sh you got the slot right before the news, you know, yeah. um, nowadays you're not getting on NBC, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, it's going to have to be a lot more than a bag of puppets. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but it's, that's, it's, it's looking at their drive and their ingenuity and saying, you know, well, what took him there? Because he didn't even want to be a puppet guy. So, you know, why did he wind up there? You know, and when you look at it, Jim just wanted to be on television and he just wanted to be a part of entertaining and then found puppetry as his niche. And then it became his passion. And then he inspired all these other folks and brings people in like Frank, who goes from, you know, doing secondary stuff for Jim to then doing these amazing characters with the Muppets and then eventually Yoda. Um, and as we know, did Yoda and completely alone with no help? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Evolving into, uh, you know, all of these other things is part of that. What you did with, uh, with, with, uh, you know, with your renovations actually fits in exactly with what I say in my book. I say, you know, look at what you have that other people don't have and build on that because that's what makes you the red tree in the forest. And you know, get in wherever you can and do whatever you have to do uh, and, and, you know, have a sense of direction, but not such a set, not such a, a, pointed sense of direction that you limit yourself from um, from changing and evolving along the way into something that that makes you unique in your own way. I think you doing um, renovations 
carved out a niche that didn't even exist before you were doing it. And that is really, I think, your stroke of genius because it is, you know, the millions of people who now look at stuff on YouTube and say, oh, that's what I want to do and spend all of their time copying what someone has already done. That's not how you get to be the guy that everyone talks about. You know, you can't lead by following other people. You have to find your own niche and, and, and cut it out for yourself and be courageous and also grasp those opportunities when they, when they come along rather than sit back and say, I'm not sure I should do this. I might fall on my face. Right. Well, no one got anywhere by not walking forward a little bit. You know, it's like yeah. falling on your face or not. Even if you fall on your face, you're still moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think it's I think that's great, and I think the I, it's funny for me. It it really you. I think the the takeaway is you might not know what that is yet. You know, you might have this general direction, but if you're too laser focused and you only want to, I only want to work in an effect shop and I only want to sculpt and I want to do prosthetic sculpture makeups for movies and that's it. Well, you're never ever going to get to do that unless you say, I just want to be in an effect shop and see what goes on there and help in any way possible. And, you know, that might mean you sweep the floor for a year, but you're going to be around this stuff and absorb and learn and connect with people and maybe find what really connects with you. Yeah, I I would I would make it broader than that again. You know, I had a friend who became, uh, you know, a, a production manager and um and line producer who um who started by ironing shirts in the wardrobe department because that was the first event that was in movies you know you you have to you have to network with whoever there is and it really doesn't matter if you feel like you're going in a in a in a direction that is not that direct if you if you say i'm going to film school when i come out i'm going to direct movies well you know i hope you've got 200 million dollars spend on your movie because the chances are you're going to go to film school and you're going to come out and you're going to wonder what the hell do i do now it, it, you know you you need to network with people and find whatever niche gets you closer to your goal uh, because the world's full of these, um, the, you know, full of little uh, hiccups and boundaries and things that try to stop you from achieving uh, your your goal, whatever it whatever it happens to be. I, I have also in my book, I make the analogy of a river flowing to the sea. You know, a river doesn't go in a straight direction. When a river meets something that is a problem too big to move, it flows to the left or it flows to the right. Uh, it goes off in all kinds of directions, but guess what? It always gets to the sea. So you guys didn't realize you thought you were just going to talk about life force and things like that, or Krell. <laughs> but you're going to go home and be inspired. And, and like the next time we do this podcast, it's going to be completely different. Uh, now that's I, I, you know, to me, I, I think this is all stuff that um, I, I'm glad that you're there to tell folks, because I think that I think there's a lot that people can learn from not it's it's 
certainly the experience, but absolutely the attitude. And, um, and it's really, it's good of you to, to share that. And it was, I think the, I think it stood out even in that earliest, earliest website that I discovered and, and said, you know what, I'm going to email this guy. <laughs> That'll work. And then it did. You know? Well, um, the, you know, at that time, that, that went up in 96, I think. And at that time, you know, the, the Internet was still uh, something that people, when you said to someone, oh, check out the Internet, they'd say, what? You right. know, people yeah, yeah. really didn't didn't uh, understand it. And, uh, you know, it was all sitting down writing HTML, uh, HTML pages and, uh, and things that were really super primitive. I mean, we used to try to make images smaller rather than right. bigger. <laughs> that yeah. uh, they would load quicker, right? You know, I, I'm yeah. still... I still sometimes come across an image and go, oh, yeah, that sounds good. And I open it up and it's, it's 4K. And I go, right. <laughs> it's this funny pixelated thing I can't see anymore, you know? So, yeah, I was like, what were we thinking? Yeah. Um, BBC named us the number one website in the world for movie special effects in 1996. And, oh, uh, and that was, and we were getting half a million hits a week. Wow. Wow. That's all, that's huge in '96. Yeah, that's pretty good now. <laughs> Dude, yeah, no, um, now there's so much noise out there; it's hard to get a, any attention from anybody. You know, I you know uh, yeah, it, and that's that's a whole separate sort of thing. You know, you also said something before about obviously the idea of taking advantage of opportunity and and jumping and you know taking that leap and all of that stuff. There's, I think there's something to be said just for being available. And I think there is a, a, a big factor in what we do with, with my business is try and take services that maybe people didn't know they could get. Maybe they think only archives could do them or museums or maybe in the case of some of the sculpting and masks and things that only a movie or a production could have and try and make those feel available to people so that they're that they're willing to make that leap and email you or they're going to call you and that you know they can they they can understand and maybe share the passion you have for this stuff you're working on and it's it it's yeah maybe it's something that is kind of like the way social media is now or something like that or maybe it's just um uh oh i don't know it's just to me it's always felt like if I'm going to have a business, I want to really connect with these customers. I want, I want to find customers that I want to work with and that share the sensibility I do. And, and I think some of taking that leap actually goes to the customer side of this because we only get to work if people commission stuff. We only get to work if someone brings the things in. Um, and how are they going to do that if they can't find your website or can't see the images you put up or the projects or see, you know, the owner talking about something on a on a podcast. Uh, maybe not see, but hear. <laughs> Still, all part of networking. I think one of the issues now, though, is going completely the other way, where you know you get a twelve-year-old kid who puts a a a, uh, a a video on YouTube about how to open a box for something, you know, it's like, right. you know, everybody is suddenly an expert in everything, you know, right. I, I 
achieve something. So you have to wade through all of that stuff to get to anything that has any real um, serious content and mm. and that seems to be getting uh, getting harder these days again something else I, I talk about in the book as i say you have to watch out for average opinions um mm. we have we, we have this um we're living in a world now where someone says, have you seen so-and-so it went viral you know there's a million people who like it you know it must be good well, just because a million people like it means it's it's average. It doesn't mean it's great. You know, it it, it could even it, mean it's uh, terrible. <laughs> it just means that average people think it's something they should watch. You know, it doesn't yeah. um, it, it it doesn't necessarily make it true, and it doesn't necessarily. Well, I, I shouldn't speak. I had one video I got three and a half million views on, but you know, it was <laughs> that was my first, so you know, you can understand why that happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't want to. I feel like I'm monopolizing here, guys. Are you? Are are, are the hosts just taking a break tonight? Is this? Uh, yeah, we, yeah <laughs> this, we're just we're in, we're enjoying the show. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how this podcast thing works. Yeah. I should I should get one of these. I, I should take a night off. You have to be careful when you get Tom and I on this show because we can we can hold the floor on our own, basically. That's right. <laughs> Something you guys were talking about, it made me think of a topic Gabe and I were talking about in a couple episodes back where we, we did an episode on uh, on the old Star Wars fan club and we talked about like they, how they would have the the the, the part of the whole thing was a, a way to facilitate letters to like Anthony Daniels or Harrison Ford or whatever. And we were t- Gabe and I got on the subject. Does, does that even still exist? Do people still write fan letters? Cause uh, like Tom, you talking about like with, with Nick and th- that, that whole era. And I kind of like what you guys were talking about with social media now, like, cause there was something very much to that, someone whose career or whose work that you admire and you writing them and being like, tell me how, how did you do it? Does that even still exist in, in today? I don't know. Back to what I was saying about the world evolving though. I mean, hardly anybody writes to anybody anymore in real terms. Nobody sends each someone a letter. And if they do, it takes six weeks to arrive. It, you know, everything is coming over now to, you know, to Facebook, you know, Oh, if someone's really famous, can we find him on Facebook? People right. do still write, um, you know, to say, oh, I really appreciate your work and I remember X, Y, and Z. But it, it's it's much more casual than it used to be. And and half the time they it's short because they write to people expecting that they don't actually read their Facebook page or, yeah. or they don't actually reply to their Facebook page and they don't want to put in too much effort, you know, and, and, and get nothing back from it. Back in there the is day, a- you know, it was very hard to to reach those people. They were not available. Yeah. And, and writing letters and hoping for the best was the only option that was out there. And so, you know, that's what people did. But I, I think there's a, a lot less uh, now. I have to tell you, uh, when um, I think the movie I was on was to keep, uh, at the time, I got a letter from 
Dick Smith, who was an idol that I had never spoken to, telling me how much he appreciated my work. That and that was like a a, a, a full page um, letter that just completely um, blew me away. In fact, of course, I've still got it. Yeah, and and I I think Dick uh, is is one of those that you know you hear a lot of stories like that. I remember. Um, when Stuart retired and, you know, uh, handed prop store a bunch of his the paperwork and things like that, they had found, uh, letters that, that Dick had written, uh, to Stu and, you know, talking materials and talking about projects. And I, I, the one standout to me was, was that he had said he thought that, you know, Chambers shouldn't have, have gotten, uh, so much notoriety for Planet of the Apes and that Stuart should have gotten it for 2001, which... I think it's actually pretty fair. <laughs> as much as I, I talked, love Planet of the Apes. I talked about that uh, uh, last last week. I don't know if you if you saw that uh, uh, that Starnet broadcast that we did, but um, it was um, Clark who originally wrote a long thing. He was outraged that Chambers had won uh, for Planet of the Apes and wrote a thing saying that he thought that you know, the academicians just didn't realize that they were fake apes, you know, that these were fake <laughs> apes and they were yeah. real apes. But actually, I, I believe that the issue was uh, actually, the evolution of the makeup department, which the academy wasn't ready for, they weren't ready to call, uh, you know, uh, people in ape suits and animatronics makeup, and right. so the, they drew the line and gave it to something that was an obvious prosthetic makeup rather than that was an uh, as you know a semi mechanical performance in a suit. Yeah, I think Rick Baker talked about having a similar sort of issue with King Kong and, you know, issues with the union and stuff and kind of going, well, I have to put makeup around my eyes to get in the suit. So, see, it's there's makeup involved. Like, just yeah. let me be King Kong and we'll get, you know, get through this. Did- a lot of the confusion over the credits on Empire Strikes Back comes from those that that time from those union problems where you know there were people working there that didn't have union tickets and they they gave them odd descriptions of you know what it was that they did i don't think i did any makeup on uh, maybe I did a couple of makeups on Empire. Yeah, I did a, a couple, not but very little. And yet, you know, I'm credited as a you know as a makeup artist on that. When I, you know, I spent almost all my time in the workshop, so it, it it was a time of evolution. The word animatronics was only applied to creature effects in movies because they were trying to bring. Well, it, it was actually Bruce Sharman. Um, had done a deal uh, with, we didn't know, but he was already working uh, with Henson towards Dark Crystal. And uh, he wanted to bring in all the Dark Crystal people who were all non-union. And so he, he came up with this uh, solution of, uh, of calling it animatronics because we were makeup artists upsetting 
the the sculptors because we were sculpting creatures and we were upsetting the plasterers because we were making molds and we were upsetting the props department because we were building puppets and we were upsetting the, the special effects department because we were building mechanisms so to get around all of that they said well let's call it animatronics and it was on the basis of that that they then brought uh, a lot of the people from the muppets in for dark crystal that's it's funny when you lay it all out like that. Is there anybody you guys didn't piss off back then? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like, and yeah, and we also brought our own sandwiches, so the catering department didn't like us. <laughs> <laughs> So, Nick, you worked on Star Wars and Empire, but not Jedi, correct? Um, sort of. I, I did do, I was on Jedi for um, a very, very short period of time. It's something I don't, I don't really talk about a lot. Uh, you know, there was some friction there that had come up that was to do with uh, the work that I'd done on Yoda, which Stu felt was... Uh, undermining his authority when he said that those things couldn't be done, and I went and did it. And so uh, he was he was trying to put me in my place, and I didn't want to build Ewoks. And I got an opportunity to do something else, so I just decided I you know I didn't want to I didn't want to stay there. So I was there for probably less than two weeks. Where where did you wind up after that? What was what was the the gig that that you went to from there? I'm not sure that it, it happened immediately, but um, it was right after that that I did uh, Hunchback and Notre Dame with Anthony Hopkins that I got nominated for an Emmy for, and then the, as I left that, I went straight on to Crawl, which uh, of course was a forty million dollar movie, where which was the happiest movie I had made, being a young guy. That they just let me do anything I wanted to do. I mean, it was uh, it was it was amazing, actually. They're very nice people. That, so that's actually nice to hear. That was always a favorite of mine as a kid. Well, kid, teenager, whatever. Um, but it was. Uh, I, I, it's interesting the way you put that. That they let you do what you wanted to do, and I, I feel like that's such a rare thing to hear in the movie industry. Um, rare. And, and rarer and rarer. I mean, I'm talking. Yeah. I'm doing these interviews with guys for our Starnet, and I'm I'm hearing more and more and more about. Oh well, this is so and so, and it was designed by this guy, and then the prosthetics were sculpted by this guy, and then the molds were made by this other guy, and then uh, I, you know, I was the one who put on the prosthetics and did uh, you know whatever and it's like it's all been broken down into such small little um parts whereas i i can't see how i would get personally uh, i wouldn't get much satisfaction from that but as a head of department i would um i would talk to 
I'd have projects that I gave myself and I would do everything on, and I'd have other projects that I would spread through the department, um, which I would try to um, steer um, the way that I, I didn't have time to physically do myself. And, uh, and I mean, there's the satisfaction in, in that, but I, you know, I, I, I'm not a great fan of the idea of having managers who are basically bureaucrats who, who make decisions about things that they don't really necessarily, they can't necessarily get off their butts and do everything themselves. It's, um, you know, we started out as be as everything being broken up into those departments of the sculptors and the and the mold makers and the props and the uh, you know and so that every you know it's like a job for everybody. But to really build something which is intrinsically one, um, you have to understand what is going to what is going to be put inside something when you are sculpting the outside and you have to understand what yes. materials you're going to make it out of when you make those molds, you can't just hand it off to someone else. And then that, you know, they use some separator that later on uh, completely destroys the material that you're trying to, um, that you're trying to cast in just so many uh, little things there. And I can't see really, how much satisfaction there could be in, in you know, in making a, a, a small part of a costume or, or a, a, you know, I made the armor and someone else made something else. It, it, somehow I just, I just, um, I'm kind of glad I was there in my day when I could literally just do my own thing. How it was crawl a particular like it feels like that was a a big like that was that was biting off a lot um it seemed like there was a lot going on in that movie there Um, was a lot in the movie and and they had um wisely decided that they would have a four-month production and um they had gotten well into the production when they kind of fell out with Chris who was building the creatures for them. And so it was six weeks before filming. And uh, for that reason, they felt like they were in a difficult position and they just, just gave me my head and let me just do my thing. I mean, apart from, Apart from the Cyclops, which I wanted to make a stronger-looking character, I, the, the design I had for that was bald with a beard, and they gave him a rather soppy wig and took the beard off because they thought it made him look friendlier. But, you know, I, he looked a lot less like a warrior than, mm. than I, you know, initially in mind. And I wanted people to try and figure out how, you know, he could only have one eye, and there was... You know, the wig, it's easy to cover um, right. the mechanics of, you know, of a mask with a wig. Uh, whereas if we did it bald, it would have been a, a bit more mind-boggling. Mind you, I, I think that was the first time. Um, we, I, I don't remember before that a animatronic mask, which was also prosthetic. The lower half was prosthetic and the upper half was animatronic. So... So I, I don't and remember. I, that was really effective too. 
like that that was that worked that that's that combo there um yeah. and it is that actually has only i feel like only just recently sort of come back around uh you see a lot of people who do alien makeups where from the nose down is is a made up mouth you know with some prosthetics on it and then from the nose up it's big goggle eyes and maybe there's a mech in there for a blink or a brow or something but that that cyclops for you know back in the day that that worked and yeah, no small feet bernard was as blind as a bat without his glasses so you know, oh, I didn't realize that when I first uh, started to make the thing. And then I then I discovered that he wasn't going to keep falling over. I, I had to uh, incorporate a, a pair of lenses for his, um, his prescription lenses into the mask as well. I don't know. I feel like it's always something like that. You know, <laughs> there's always some element you weren't able to foresee ahead of time. There's only so much planning gets you. Well, that seems like something people don't think about, too, that you're not just making makeup or a prosthetic in a vacuum. Like it has to work with a person and not just any person. Most of the time it's a particular person and you have to deal with the idiosyncrasies of that particular person. Uh, and and also, you know, the the physical limitations as well. You know, it's you're always working with a person. Uh, it's only really when you're when you're working on either background stuff or um, or, or stuff that uh, is more impromptu. Um, like in in a zombie movie, you might have made something that the director pulls out and that ends up in front of crowd. But usually. Um, uh, you know anything that is um, a specific character. Obviously, you've got to you've got to work with the limitations of what is uh, of them, and uh, those limitations include physical and um, and also personality, which sometimes gets to be a challenge as well. What was the biggest piece you had to work on for Krell? Um, was there was it? I, you know, obviously we have makeups. There was creature stuff. Were, were it, you involved in the? Beast. It was the beast. You didn't really get to see the beast, but the beast was the was the character that I was trying to blow everybody away with. Um, you know, the beast. You, you hardly saw it because Derek, who um, was handling the opticals and second unit, had had this phobia about people in suits, and so he uh, he was convinced that. You know, you could never make a person in a suit believable. Um, and so he he shot everything with an anamorphic lens and uh, threw a, a, a plate of glass um, smeared with Vaseline. And, uh, you know, consequently, uh, you didn't really get to see what it was that we that we built. Um, I had a, I had. A young crew because I was a young boss and I didn't want to bring on all the old boys who would see me as a as a bit of an upstart, uh, and I didn't want to bring on uh, people who had preconceived ideas on how something should be done. And so, uh, you know, I took on a young crew. I had Davy White. He was 16 years old uh, when we started that. When we started, he started with me, and 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 you know Bob Keane, who was uh, my my number two for about five years, 
And uh, on that movie, Nick Dubman came and helped me on, on one of those things as well. The thing really was I wanted to show what I could do. And this, you know, this was a $40 million movie. And this was my chance to shine, even if I didn't have a lot of time. Um, so The Beast um, had all its, you know, what, what, I, what I got was a drawing that was a gray figure with red eyes. And so I stuck with that. But then I I took, let my imagination take it beyond that. So as I looked at the drawings that had been done for the sets, which were rather organic, not 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 alien organic, but but had a sense of uh, of uh, the architecture was like ribs and various other things. So I kind of incorporated the the flavor of the set into the design of the creature, uh, so that you could almost. Um, see one in the other, like the Black Fortress inside of the Black Fortress was really being surrounded by the beast. And so we actually built it on uh, on a girl who had an 18-inch waist so that we could get broad shoulders and a tiny little waist. And we built the lungs on the outside. They were mechanical lungs that expanded and contracted. Um, we, uh, we had uh, veins on the outside of the suit that had two colored liquids running through the veins. So you could see the fluids um, running through the, through the suit. And that went up through what looked like the hair into the head and ran through the brain. So you could see the colors that were moving through the brain and through the stuff all at the same time we we had that you know the eyes uh, the eye movement we had a snout movement as well as the teeth that were separate we had 12 working fingers on each hand i mean we really went to town on this thing and then they put vaseline all over the front of the camera right. nope. <laughs> oh. oh yeah yeah and it i mean if people look up the beast from crow i mean it's it's a wild design. It's very, it feels like maybe it owes a little to some, you know, uh, maybe some outer limits or 60s stuff, maybe a little creature from the Black Lagoon, but it really has uh, a great, uh, gosh, almost a little swamp thing just with the veins and all of that on the outside. Um, but the lungs are really a trip. It's 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 a cool looking creature. And it's I think it doesn't get uh, maybe it doesn't get its due just because of how, you know, how it was shot. Now, how, well, how yeah, yeah. I mean, people got to see it in order to uh, it's really a lot of the photos that people see now are photos that came out of the archive afterwards, you know, so. Um, but that's the way of it. But you know, we're still not talking about Star Wars. <laughs> no, <laughs> one, no, we're not. One last, one last thing with Krull. I just with the creature from Krull. I just the beast. I remember uh, being a kid because he was his head was on the poster, and I remember being a kid at the movie theater. Like Krull was like coming this summer, and I remember seeing that beast head on the poster and being like, "That's going to be the greatest movie of all time." And when I saw it. And I still love Kroll. I thought it was the greatest movie of all time. And I know Gabe and I are big Kroll fans. So this is, this is you know, it's fine. It was only a matter of time before this became Kroll points. Who needs to, we're just going to talk about Kroll from now on on the show. Beyond our time. Beyond.
beyond our universe, there is a planet besieged by alien invaders, where a young king must rescue his love from the clutches of the beast, or risk the death of his world. A world called Krull. A world light years beyond your imagination. And kind of while we're on a tangent here a little bit, I, I do have a question because you have worked on a lot of films. And is there a movie that, that you're really proud of that you kind of don't get asked about very often? Because I'm sure you get asked about Star Wars all the time, which, you know, obviously. But is there something other than Krull in your career that you're just really proud of and, and it doesn't get talked about enough? Uh, it, it varies. You know, there, there's little cliquey fans for everything. Um, you know, even some stuff that I that I really wish I'd never been involved in. But I I, I still think my best work was in Life Force. Uh, love Life Force. Love Life Force. Oh, it was unfortunate. It was an everyday story about soul-sucking vampires from outer space. But um, <laughs> you know, it, it, and the, and the critics, you know, hated it and slammed it and and basically destroyed it. But there were, you know, again, very short preparation time on that movie. And uh, yeah, it was a uh, the, the the company were were not renowned for being overly generous. You know the, the the issues that there were over you know not casting yet the transformation sequence in there between where we, I've got two guys that are, are transforming this is real time transformation in front of the camera um, they didn't cast those parts until ten days before filming so you know I'm trying to build two robots without knowing what the people look like. That was uh, there were a lot of challenges on that, but uh, but I there is no doubt that that has the that has the best work that I did. But I I I maybe I'm also attached to it because I rewrote a number of those um, sequences with Dan O'Banner, and you know directed the animatronics unit um, to film those sequences. So you sort of made sure. I, I guess you know that's it, is that's a fairly rare thing that you would get to direct your own sequences. I know you know sometimes the FX guys get input, but usually it's the reverse story. You know, usually it's the the beast from Krell and just you know wait, you're shooting it how? You know, yeah. But uh, that's that that's the problem, right? And yeah, and that was part of um, that was that was all the things that. Um, uh, that became a problem on on Highlander, where I had done the storyboards for the quickening, and um, you know I was supposed to shoot second unit, and the cinematographer couldn't handle the concept in those days of a guy with a makeup ticket telling the cameraman to turn over. That was part of what uh, I mean. There were a lot of problems on that on that movie, but it was part of what led me to um, collapse with exhaustion on that job. But anyway, it's uh, that's another story. I love Life Force. Also, anything with with working with uh, with Toby Hooper because he's such a at least to me always seemed like such an interesting character. <laughs> Tobe was definitely a character. <laughs> Yes, he was. But he would, you know, he was very giving. You know, he was ready to. Uh, once he could see the first stuff that I filmed, he would just show up and say, "What are we filming today?" 
I mean, it was, um, but really, he was very easy to work with. That's great. It's great to hear. I don't think he got the most subtle performances out of his people. That, that, didn't, that didn't seem to be his style, no. <laughs> they watched. They waited. Now their time has come. Out of the depths of space, the ultimate terror. He knows what it is. You don't know what we're dealing with here. An evil we cannot comprehend. A beauty we cannot resist. Tom, be with me. An alien force that feeds on raw living energy. It's already spreading. You didn't stop it. It's too late. Life force. In the blink of an eye, the terror begins. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Do you feel, you know, you talk about the, the, the short time frames people give you and how they're not casting the actors until, you know, days before you need to make a robot of them and stuff like that. Um, do you feel that, especially in the 80s, where you had all this great makeup success in the early 80s, that producers just got this mindset of, um, well, these guys are miracle workers. They can do anything. We don't have to give them lead time. We don't have to give them big budgets. We just have to tell them what we want, and they'll amaze us. Well, I, I, I do think that um, I do think that I got a reputation for producing spectacular stuff in a very short period of time. That led me from one extraordinarily difficult job to another um, and ultimately ended up with me, you know, pushing myself really honestly too far. I think that, you know, if I had advice to give to someone who was, you know, the new guy who was going to be head of department, I would, I would really discourage them for working more than 70 hours in a week. You know, I I think I had a a a big heart that really wanted to make the most of every job, and so that led to me basically planning, actually planning to to do um, you know eighty eighty five hours a week to say oh yeah but we can do that if we work sixteen hours a day uh, let's plan on sixteen hours a day seven six days a week and if we drop behind we'll do it seven days a week. Well, this kind of makes me think of a a Star Wars question actually I had is you know starting on the original film where. All through production, no one had any idea that this movie was going to be successful. And then it comes out and it's the biggest movie of all time. Then going into Empire Strikes Back, what was just the differences with the effects department of far as, you know, starting a film, knowing you're making the sequel to a, a successful film, as opposed to starting the first film where you had no idea what what was going to happen? Um, well, basically, you know, the first Star Wars was a low-budget movie where nobody really expected it to be anything at all. And the second t- time around, it was this huge endeavor that uh, everybody knew was going to be a big hit and, and where they gave us too much time instead of not enough. Well, it, it was. I mean, basically, they spent... Uh, I know there's a video of Stu saying, oh, this is Yoda, and I, you know, I've been working on him for two weeks. At that point in time, you only spent five months modeling Yoda because they had the time to, to mess around. I mean, there's, there's a lot of misinformation that comes out from stuff that came from the publicity department. 
yeah, whoever's uh, yeah, whoever's producing the behind the scenes will go in and put words in your mouth, you know, <laughs> or and and sometimes I'm sure it's different people in the crew who want to make themselves or their team look good too. But it, it is it is interesting that um, yeah, on Star Wars they they had uh, you know they had years between the movies and they had come up with all of this stuff where, where um, you know, Craig Miller and uh, uh, Charles Lippincott were, were, they were, they were doing stuff just to promote uh, the movies, whether it was, whether it was real, whether it wasn't, they were putting out, you know, fake rumors just so that people would talk about the movies between the <laughs> movies. So it, when you then come along and you've got, uh, a publicity department, you know, they just wanted stuff to put out on publicity. What's the best stuff that we've got sitting around that we can make something out yeah. of? Whether it's true or not is almost immaterial. Sorry, sorry to the uh, to the archivist who's devoted his life to looking after all of this stuff that <laughs> is half true. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that was actually what got me writing Cine Secrets was the fact that there was so much stuff out there that that people took for granted. That really wasn't the case at all. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that, uh, the, the, the real divergence there was just your uh, not even willingness, but drive to uh, give credit to the unsung heroes and to talk about, you know, those uh, the the men and women who were on these teams who you know just bore the brunt of it and did a lot of that work and who you know weren't head of department didn't get interviewed for the videos you know they they were the ones like you said who got sent out on errands whenever the cameras came through mm-hmm. you know and and I think Graham maybe being foremost and it's funny because Graham being you know Stu and Kay's son I think he's still he's not really mentioned in those old. Uh, you know the the old books and the old production stuff. It's only recently that movie database. It says that he worked on Empire Strikes Back and he was uncredited. Right, exactly. That was his son, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you know, it was um, you know, it wasn't. He just suddenly emerged on uh, on on the first yeah. movie. He wasn't credited on the second movie. He was suddenly he was the head of the makeup department, whereas um, and Stu was was designing creatures and not worrying about doing makeup anymore um, because he was spending all his time, you know, working on basically working on sculpting Yoda. I know we we talk about all the time the the fact that Yoda worked as well as he as he did is such a miracle and if Yoda had failed and looked like Kermit the Frog what you know would empire the, all the stuff he was saying it never would have worked at any time when you were working on the development of Yoda were you ever just like what are we doing here like it never been done before in a movie like a a, a puppet being taken that seriously uh, we, we didn't really know, I think, exactly what we were building at the time. I mean, you, you when I would be head of department, I, I would sit down and talk to a director and try to figure out what it was that was in his head and try to figure out what I could make and find a compromise that would work. And I would look in my head, I would have this 
this image of what I wanted to build. We'll call that 100%. And I would say to uh, the director, well, I can give you X, Y, and Z, which is 70% of what I had in my head. I knew I could achieve at least 70%. And if I produced 80%, he would be thrilled with me because I gave him more than I said, even if I could achieve the 100%. So, you know, with Yoda, we were just trying to put in every movement that we possibly could in, in a, in my case, in a ridiculous amount of time. You know, I said that, you know, I got known for doing impossible things um, very quickly because the the backup Yoda that I built, I didn't build the prototype, Stu built that. The um, the backup Yoda that was used in 80% of the movie, I built in three days, uh, three days and three nights. But, you know, so for that reason, people kept on saying, well, you know, when everybody else has turned it down, let's, let's give the job to Nick. He's the one who takes on these crazy things. Oh, I'm going to pay him twice as much as anybody else. Eventually, I, I did get to that point because I was I was putting in, you know, on, on Highlander, my contract said they had to pay me overtime if I worked more than 96 hours in a week. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually in my contract. So anyway. Um, so why, my question is, why were you slacking so much? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but honestly, the brilliance, I believe, of Yoda and the impact that he had on Empire Strikes Back from a technical point of view, was um, uh, you had you know obviously was inspired by Stu, and it was Stu's concepts of animatronics that that we that that were that were driving us forward. If I hadn't sat and watched what he was building, I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have had the insight to be able to say, well, that could break down and that could break down, and I need something that's simpler. And I wouldn't have built what I built. But really and truly, the, I think a lot of the credit has to go to Frank and Kirsch. Frank, because it was his sensitivity that made Yoda an actual character and not a Muppet. I mean, he's a Muppet guy. He could have he could have turned easily turned Yoda into you know, Miss Piggy or or whatever else. <laughs> um, and that and that wasn't you know and it wouldn't have mattered what we built it, it, you know right. the performance is what there was that Frank working with those other puppeteers gave gave Yoda that extraordinary um, sense of life but over and above that you have to give credit to Kirsch who was terrified of Yoda because he was afraid it was going to be you know his biggest failure and. Um, and who let Frank gave him the space to give a real performance, um, the dignity that Kirsch gave, first of all, in the time that he allowed Yoda, the length of time for those shots, which was very brave for a puppet, um, and, and then in the way it was edited. Yeah, and and that's I think brave is such a great way to say it too, um, because yeah, those those shots linger on that puppet, and for I mean a- any sort of effects thing, you're 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 like get that camera off of it, you know how yeah. how quick can we move on to the next thing? Especially comparing it to like you were saying with crawl, it, you know. 
they didn't put Vaseline on the lens. Like he filmed Yoda like he was any other character in the movie and, and took that risk of letting the camera linger on it. Exactly right. Exactly. And maybe that's that's part of what made it as good as it was. Uh, you know, was the it's it's that I you know I think Hammerhead is always one of those examples I use too. John Berg talks about how he was holding that thing together, you know, praying it wasn't going to fall apart during the shot. And mm-hmm. you, you look at it, and it was, you know, especially when you see it from the reverse angle, and the skin is all torn up, and he's it's he's clenching it with one hand and there's a sheet thrown over him, a black sheet. So he can stand behind it and hold it. And the body is just a chunk of foam. And yet they, you know, they turn around to that other camera angle and you've got the right lights, a little bit of smoke, and it's just magical. It goes on screen and it just looks real. And so it's, you know, everybody's got to depend on everybody else in, uh, in a picture. And that, uh, you know, certainly is a big contribution to to Yoda being as effective as he was. And obviously the lighting and the cameraman is, you know, is the ultimate uh, lens through which everything passes. And the camera, you know, cinematographer can make even the nicest thing look like a pile of shit if he really wants to. <laughs> and similarly, similarly um, you know, he can, ta- he can take something that really doesn't look too good and make sure it works. Yoda was, was beautifully lit. And I think that that's another, that's a, a, you know, another thing that helped. Do you feel Yoda? So, you know, just being on set and around it, sometimes you look at things you say, well, you know, through through the lens, this is going to work. Or or once they, you know, once they get this in post, this will look fine. Uh, did you guys feel like Yoda was effective and was was you know hitting the notes you felt it needed to when you were on set, or were you still apprehensive? Uh, I you know I basically I would look at Yoda not on set. I would look at him in rushes. Um, because you know, when you're on set, everything is about like, hang around. Let's just sit around here and try not mm. to fall asleep for three hours while right. they like something and fix something, and then let's get this shot as quickly as we can, please. And right. did it work? I mean, did it look all right? I mean, really, you know. And yes. and and also as a certainly as a as a makeup artist and as a um, creature effects guy trying to persuade the cinematographer to let me actually look through the camera was was a challenge at times. <laughs> so I, I I tell this story about the first time I saw the backup Yoda on on film after we'd worked sixty hours in three days and slept on the floor in the in the storeroom because uh, we were too tired to drive home. And we slept for about, I don't know, 22 hours, something like that. And we woke up and it was an hour or so before rushes for the puppet that we'd made just before we we went to sleep. Um, and so we went down to the, uh, we went down to rushes and uh, rushes on that movie wasn't a public affair. I mean, there was a little viewing theater and, and normally you, you'd have to be invited to go to rushes, but you know, I was so driven to see what, you know, what to, to, to know whether what we'd done was good or it wasn't. We kind of snuck in and there was only three people in the viewing theater 
That was uh, the cinematographer and George Lucas and uh, David, the first assistant. And we, me and, and this assistant who'd worked with me for 60 hours, we just slid into the back row of the viewing theater. I don't think the other three even knew whether we were there. And, and we're sitting watching uh, the rushes and it, there's no sound, of course, but, and it was a sequence of Yoda with his head in the box, throwing all the stuff over his shoulder. Mm. that was my first view of what we'd done and so you know in that moment i knew that that was going to be the turning point that was going to be what i'd worked 13 years uh to do and often i'll say i'll say to young people you know don't 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 decide that you're not going to bother to try to put 150% into what you're doing because you might not get a return out of it because you're never going to know what it is that you do that is going to be that turning point that changes the rest of your life. You know, I, I, I think I only got Star Wars because I worked with Graham on, uh, on, uh, on a, 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 a a Holston Pills lager ad that had Frankenstein and, and all the characters on and Graham and I, um, you know, made, made all those characters. Um, and it was that that gave Graham the confidence to suggest to Stu in firmer terms that I should, you know, I should join the crew on, on the first Star Wars. Little things lead to bigger things and you have to just give 150% to every opportunity. Unless it puts you into overtime of 90 hours a week or more, <laughs> in which case then less might help. Size matters not. Look at me. Just me by my size, do you? Hmm? Hmm. And where you should not. For my ally is the Force. And the powerful ally it is. Life creates it. Makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us. And binds us. Luminous beings are we. Not this crude matter. You must feel the Force around you. You. Between you. Me. The tree. Everywhere. So tell us a little bit about what you've got going on now with, with uh, the, the events that you talked about. And if you, the, you want to talk about uh, the Yoda guy museum that you have, like just what, what's going on now for you? Yeah, well, the museum's basically, uh, it's a, it's was intended as a way to fund a nonprofit to encourage youngsters to follow their dreams and think big and overcome negativity. And also, you know, to pay me to live in the Caribbean. I uh, kind of established it, well, uh, 2011 it officially became a museum. Up to that time it was kind of started out as an art gallery and we just kept on building bits and adding it on. Um, when COVID came in, I realised that... Uh, that we were in, uh, you know, a lot of trouble because the the Caribbean only gets people who come from places that uh, on holiday. And so, you know, if America or Europe have got a problem with COVID, they, you know, we've got it. It's not just a matter of us getting rid of the infection. It's about us trying to hold out 
in a place that is all about tourists um, until such times the tourists come back again. So, you know, America's got to recover uh, before uh, enough for people to say, oh, I'm feeling flush now. I think I'll, you know, I'll go on holiday to the Caribbean. Uh, and so, you know, we know for sure we can write off this year and quite possibly um, at least half the next year. So we have to survive in the meantime. So, you know, I have a lot of people who, who you know, who are great supporters from, um, from having visited us in the past. And so I reached out to them through social media and to try and thank them for their support. Um, you know, that, you, know you, you help us by donating $10 a month or whatever else through Patreon to help us survive. And I'll put on, I'll reach out to my friends and my colleagues and we'll start putting on these shows basically um, for those people. So we, we put on a show actually every week. Um, we have um, a live uh four-hour show every other week uh, for the for our, our patrons and then um, the weeks that we're not doing a live show then um, we do a free uh, showing in the Starnet events uh, Facebook group that uh, that is one of those panels that we filmed the previous week. So each week, I mean, the first week, I kind of got completely carried away and did an eight-hour show with, uh, with nine panels, which I, I guess is typical of me trying to do too much and, and reaching <laughs> for the stars. But, but now we've kind of cut it back to something that is uh, more manageable and allows time for questions and other things as well. And it's been, it's been really good, actually, to reconnect with old friends, um, to, to talk about different things and also helps me feel uh you know what while we're doing all of this i'm actually acquiring more and more footage ultimately that is absolutely in keeping with telling the stories that those filmmakers have to tell which is what the museum's all about so you know eventually i can I, I don't know. We'll we'll end up with hours and hours and hours of uh, of footage. I think on lots of different subjects. Um, people from Star Wars, people from stunts, people from special effects—the kind of people who aren't normally interviewed because they're not front of camera, but have worked on a hundred movies or whatever else. We we had a stunt coordinator. Um, last weekend who you know done eight bomb movies and uh, and indiana jones and uh you know and aliens and you know these are people who who have such um a history and of of the nuts and bolts of what makes movies work rather than the glamorous side of oh you know you're a star please tell us why you know, we should come and and watch this movie. It's it's about making movies rather than about watching them. And they've been great thus far. And I'm not just saying that because I've been a part of a few of them. <laughs> Although I think those ones were exceptional. Let's admit, they were but, good. But, they no, were... <laughs> but no, it's it's been yeah, it's been really good. And I think it's 
it's uh, certainly in this time where a lot of people have a little spare time on their hands and maybe they're spending a little more time in front of a computer or not going out as much. It's a great way to spend a few hours on a weekend. It's the cost is so minimal and what you get out of it, you know, I think is just fantastic. And the types of guests you're getting, I, I love that as a focus. And I think it's just in keeping with that thing that you know, connected us 20 years ago, which was you shining a light on the people that make this magic behind the scenes. And, and also you know. sharing, sharing on how, you know, on how to do uh, different things. We, we, we alternate the, the live shows between, uh, between movie making and cosplay because cosplay is really um, a, a, an extension. It's, it's the next generation of movie makers um, finding their feet as amateurs to make things. And I, I know you've got some people that are they're just so besotted with video games that they're just you know playing at being those characters. But um, but there's a whole generation of people who start by doing cosplay and then go on to you know to work for Disney and work for you know for other people too. Uh, we you know we had one show that was all about three three D printing for cosplay, but for for building creatures, and it was um, it, it was really interesting to see how that how that technology was being utilized as in 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 doing that. All this is great, just because it does seem like one of the one of the great things about Star Wars fans generally is as much as they appreciate the movies, they appreciate how the movies were made and. That's a lot of people's kind of foot in the door to, to getting into learning about how, how movies are made and how special effects are made. And, and it's great that you're carrying on that tradition of, of showing people how it is as a, to learn and also just to showcase the people who are doing the work and, and making the magic happen behind the screen. Yeah, I know, and the evolution too, because um, you know we we've we've have generations of people that are making all the new Star Wars movies that um, are are on these shows as well. So it's multi generational, really, in that regard. We had the very first the very first um, show we had. We had the, the you know, prosthetic guys from Mandalorian. Um, oh, that's right. And one of the costumers and. Uh, and others so and we're i i don't know if i'm speaking too soon but uh we may have one of the texts from uh rogue one uh for our next show oh wow wow i don't know i'm still waiting for confirmation on that well we'll be looking forward to that hopefully and i this has been amazing i mean nick and tom thank you both so much for taking the time. Like I said, I know it was kind of last minute, <laughs> like we kind of, but this has just been, I don't know, just absolutely fascinating. And yeah, we can't thank both of you enough. Well, no, my you're, pleasure. I'm, I'm always happy. I, I, I never get tired of the sound of my own voice. <laughs> uh, luckily, neither do we. And I think what's really really cool is just that that the the path continues and that you know even now you're you're finding ways to take what you knew and turn it into something uh something new and novel and trying to uh 
trying to create new ways for people to connect about these great stories and to get this information out there to people. And, uh, and yeah, it's fantastic. And well, glad I think, you're doing I think it. the secret to, uh, enjoying life is, uh, is, is personal evolution. The basic principle that, you, you know, don't, uh, don't set something in stone and say, this is what I do because, uh, Someone else is going to see it and copy it, and then there'll be two of you doing it, and then there'll be ten of you doing it. You need to evolve all the time. You know, that's how come I, you know, I went from from being a, a, a makeup artist to doing animatronics to um, directing animatronics to writing scripts to um, shooting second unit to, you know, it's an evolution. And what I'm doing now is still an evolution from what I was doing then, only you adapt to the new tools that, that, the, that a new world, a changing world um, gives to you. And, uh, and that keeps everything you do still fresh. It, it, it makes today something that you hadn't done before. And that's got to be more interesting than just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Although um, traditional wisdom really uh, exalts um, getting a, a good job and doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> I think uh, you know Tom has uh, has carved his own niche and know, understands exactly what I'm talking about there because uh, because what he's doing is an is a constant evolution moving from uh, from where he started through a series of of different events that take him to new challenges and new stuff and uh, you know and that's uh, and that I, keeps I, you going I, every day. I would hate the, the idea that I ever reached a point where um, where that wasn't happening. Yeah. If it did, I'd have to go out and, and decide I needed to learn Kung Fu or, or, or some video. Your <laughs> <laughs> old Kung Fu master or something. Yeah. I'm, for some reason, I'm sort of surprised you haven't even that you haven't done that already. I feel like <laughs> I feel like if this COVID thing goes on long enough. We're going to see Nick with like, you know, how to like Kung Fu how to videos and, and just you know, learning. Um, I, I got too much on my plate right now. But, you know, if I once I run out of things to do because COVID is yeah. around too long. Yeah, I got to finish yeah. up the, um, the the rebuild of um, Yoda that I'm that I'm just finishing right yeah. now. <laughs> no, it was it was a pleasure. Thank you for um, for calling me, even if I had forgotten all about it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well, be no well, problem. Nick. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. Your step must be quick. Your action sure. Yoda puppet and the Force lightsaber each sold separately. As you move your lightsaber, the sound of the Force moves with you. It can be a powerful friend. That is your first lesson. Learn it well. The Force is my lightsaber. The Force is in all things, even you, my young Jedi. The Force lightsaber and new Yoda puppet, each sold separately from Kenner Star Wars, the Empire Strikes Back collection. All right, that was that was incredible. That was epic. That was more than I could have expected. Not was I, I was expecting. I don't know. It's, Do you mean like more 
work than you could expect because it felt like you weren't doing a lot of work. Today. <laughs> I didn't wanna... it, it takes a lot of energy to listen intently. So. I could hear that you were doing that. Yes. <laughs> no, the, the, intense, the intensity, listening intensifies. I feel like there's going to be a meme and a gif or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, so neat. I mean, we went from Kroll to beyond to star wars and then back again it was yeah it was and and we've only just scratched the surface i think of of nick's contribution and stories and uh you could probably have him on another three or four times and still not even get there i know i've heard a bunch from uh from empire and from star wars that we really just never even got to we just explored so many different things and i that's my favorite kind of conversation to have one that just kind of goes all over the place and leaves you inspired speaking of being inspired tom what have you got going on at regal robot right now what's happening speaking of going all over the place (laughs) i uh, yeah it's I, we've, we have so much going on. We, we spent our, our, our shutdown here in New York working our butts off and, and um, keeping things going, but also developing new product and trying to put our, our efforts into stuff that, you know, okay, if we can't produce right now, let's at least dream up the next stuff. And so we have now come back uh, into the studio. Everybody's distancing and wearing masks and being very safe as, as, as much as possibly uh, we possibly can. But now we're diving into the, the sort of nitty gritty of all of these things that have been in the works for so long. And I think you guys will be very interested to hear about this particular one. Uh, in just a few days, people will finally be able to get the first licensed official life-sized scanned off the real prop bust of CZ3. (laughs) The, uh, it's my, you know, as you guys know, my favorite droid, my vote for Miss Droid America. Well, how did, I forget what the name was. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Which, prop, props to Gordon for the whole time knowing that he's the droid on the Jedi Jedi Temple Challenge and just not saying a word, being cool as a cucumber the whole time. So <laughs> next time when we do when we do the next uh, dro- Miss Droid America pageant, we'll we'll have some words. For Gordon, but anyway, anyways, anyways, he did so great with that too, and he made the suit like it's not just he didn't just show up and put something on that the costume department made or whatever. Like he designed and made that thing. He got input from the art department, but like that's all through his hands, and then uh, very tightly fit onto him and performed. And I'm so happy he got that gig. It was so amazing. So, cool. um, but yeah. We're we're super excited that CZ is going to get out there finally. There's it's a very limited edition. Please go to regalrobot.com to learn more. Uh, they go up for sale on Monday, the 13th of July at 12 noon Eastern, um, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see how he goes. We've had great feedback already, which is exciting. I've a couple people who said like. Thank goodness, this is my favorite droid. I never thought anybody would do something like this. And, I, you know, that's why we're here. <laughs> but we have a lot of other really fun stuff in the works. Um, and and we're, we just finished prototyping a new maquette that will be out probably in August or maybe September. Uh, late August, maybe early September. Uh, we just finished 
kind of phase one prototyping for our one-to-one Rancor puppet replica, which is not a functional puppet, but is a one-to-one replica of the original Phil Tippett puppet that we got to scan the original in the archives, digitally restore and repose it, and then output it uh, now. And we've just finished the output phase. We're now doing all some little hand refining and stuff like that. And then it's on to mold and cast and he'll be released uh, in the next few months, um, there's just a lot of really exciting things happening and, and those are just scratching the surface. I'm, I'm buzzing every day when I get back to the studio, there's, uh, we've got a bigger crew than ever and we're just all working hard to make lots and lots and lots of cool stuff. So cool. So cool. So good to hear. If folks want to keep on track with all of that stuff, uh, go to regalrobot.com and sign up for the email newsletter or find us at Regal Robot or my other company at Tom Spina Designs on all the social places that the people go. As always, all the links are going to be in this episode's show notes. And yeah, Tom, honestly, like we love having you on. It's <laughs> The check is in the mail, I promise. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm still waiting. I mean, I asked the post guy, like, you know, did I miss something? Because I wasn't here this morning. Maybe I missed them. I don't think. I think tomorrow's a holiday too. So I guess I'll just. I'll just. I'll wait. It's fine. <laughs> Star Wars fans, we know all about waiting. So. Yeah. Well, all thank right. you as always for having me be a part of the show. I, you know, look forward to chatting with you every time. Is always a blast. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Podcast reviews, uh, you know what we're saying. You know what you got to do when you get done listening. If you listen on something, Apple, go write us a little review over there. It helps the show in ways that no one understands. But we love reading the reviews, and we will read yours on an upcoming episode. And don't forget to check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're in the Super Chill group. Not only is it super chill, it's super fun. And you can find out all kinds of Regal Robot and Tom Spina Designs information in there as well. We and always if you want try to- and give the chill group the, the little in-the-know kind of sneak peeks when we can. we got a good group. we got a good group of people in there. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we have got the Blast Points Army on Patreon, where we just did an episode about J.W. Rinsler's conversation from his living room that was incredible with Brandon from Talking Bay 94. And there's going to be a commentary for a very special Star Wars ripoff movie coming later this month that we're really looking forward to doing. But that about wraps up number 225 here. Um, talking to Nick Maley, talking to Tom Spina. Wow. Thank you again, Tom. Thank you for setting this up. Thank you once again. Absolutely. My pleasure. I will chat with you guys again in the future. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. 
May the force be with you. Who are they? No, sorry. I, 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 don't don't know. Know. I don't know. I don't know. We're don't just know. along They're for the, the ride. Former yeah. hosts of the yeah. Black Point podcast. Yeah. Right. Oh, shit. Give me a second. I got a centipede here. I got to get rid of. Ooh. <laughs> we can edit that part out right now. Yeah. I, I kind of wish we were hearing just like crashing and cat squealing and things like that. Like just. <laughs> Swords clashing. Oh gosh, <laughs> it's got a gun. <laughs> this is All right, so well, weird. <laughs> I'm freaking out. May the force be with.